Hello, and welcome to the Bitcoin Takeover podcast. I'm Vlad, and my guest today is Matt B. And that's a B as in Bitcoin. And I'm not sure whether or not I should call him Matt Bitcoin. But at the same time, I know that he's a fellow writer. He also writes for Bitcoin Magazine. He used to write for Crypto Insider. And I guess we have a lot in common. And there is one specific article about doing off-chain Bitcoin transactions that I ripped off from him. And I'm not sure if he's aware of it. But anyway, hello, Matt. How's it going, Bob? Thanks for having me. It's good to have you. And I'm happy that I get to have the opinion of a fellow writer. I'm not sure if you consider yourself to be a journalist, but you're definitely a writer. And we can talk about this incredible technology, which got only bigger, despite of the market movements, got only bigger after we saw the communities agreeing on the paths of scaling. Are you still there? Yeah, yeah, sorry. Um, yeah. I no. Mean- I just took a break. I'm not, I wasn't sure if you want to go on and say that you agree with me or whatever. This is very informal, so we don't have anything planned, just so you know if you're listening this. So, I, um, I agree with you on that scaling thing. I mean, I think the, the, like, I think 2017, that was one of the big events, uh, kind of the rift between big box and off-chain scaling. Um, yeah, I, I like the I like the kind of second layer solutions as well there uh, to write about. I guess I also appreciate the fact that even big blockers have seen how terrible it can be when they disagree about bigger blocks, like like we saw the hash wars in late 2018. Yeah, that hash war was really quite anticlimactic. I was expecting, I was expecting a lot bigger. Um, be more of a scuffle. Yeah, but it was still some kind of show-off on behalf of both sides. And they were yeah. both trying to come out as victors and pretending to hold the true vision of Satoshi. And one of them ended up being called Satoshi's vision. And it was actually funny to see them disagree about increasing the block size to a certain limit. Yeah, I mean, uh, SV, you're talking about terabyte blocks, aren't they? No, that, that's on the roadmap. I guess right now they have 64 megabytes. I should check yeah. it out, though. But I, I know that they have bigger blocks than Bitcoin Cash, like ABC. Mm-hmm. And... They are planning to have terabyte blocks and they pretend to be the government and enterprise friendly version of Bitcoin. Yeah. I mean, which, I mean, which is hilarious. Sorry. If you read the tweets of Craig Wright, and I cannot do it directly, I had to follow one of the bots, which actually retweet whatever he posts. And if you follow him, he's obsessed with patents while pretending to be Satoshi. Yeah, it's it's weird. Um, he, he talks a lot of uh, well, nonsense. Um, I see him apply kind of definitions to things that li- literally no one else holds. Um, 
yeah, it's, it's entertaining though. Uh, my feed's been quite boring since he blocked me sometime last year. Um, but as you say, this bot uh, kind of lets you into his mind. So was it funny for you to see how, for the first time ever, the ABC side of Bitcoin Cash was saying that it's actually important to run your own node? And they had this disagreement about whether or not it's important to run a node. They were trying to win the consensus where, and they required, in spite of all the hashing power, they also required nodes to be their voters. To me, it was quite ironic. Poetic justice. Poetic justice. I like uh, yeah, the way you put it. Yeah. Nodes are like the backbone of Bitcoin. Um, I mean, if, if you want to have, I mean, what is it with uh, Bitcoin? I don't even know what it's called. Bitcoin ABC now is 32 gigabytes, is it? No, it's megabytes. How can it be? How can oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah. No, uh, megabytes. Um, but that's, that's quite a strain on your node. Um, I mean, my, my normal Bitcoin node it has a terabyte hard drive attached to it. Um, and you're downloading, well, between like one and 2.4 megabytes every 10 minutes. Uh, I'm not going to have to replace that for couple of years anyways. Um, but once you start bringing in these bigger blocks, uh, you, you drive the price up or run a node, uh, okay. which kind of rules other people from using them. Right. Let, let's just forget about the Bcash side of the debate and focus on the really good stuff that's actually going to be around here in five years. And... You right now, you're Irish, right? Mm-hmm. And you're fortunate and lucky enough to have traveled all the way to New Zealand. Yeah. So you get the best of both worlds. And I guess you can give us a perspective on what it's like to be a Bitcoin toddler in both countries and whether or not you can actually use it as a mean of exchange to pay for restaurants or maybe go to a hotel and pay with Bitcoin, or maybe purchase items online? Um, yeah, I use, um, I use BitRefill quite a lot. That's a, that's a fantastic service. Um, you know, you can get like Uber Eats vouchers, Uber vouchers, uh, phone top-ups. Um, so that's quite convenient. Um, I mean, you know, you, you kind of have this exaggerated belief that Bitcoiners uh, just kind of hold the Bitcoin, don't spend it under any circumstances. Um, kind of disagree with that, to be honest. Um, I mean, I think that it's like a parable. Uh, the message you want to take from that is just be responsible with your finances. Um, but to be honest, I think Bitcoin should be spent um, to an extent, of course, and then you want to hold some of it long-term. Um be aside from internet purchases, have trouble spending it. Uh, what, what about yourself? Because you're, you're paid in Bitcoin as well. That's an interesting disclosure, and I may or may not be paid in Bitcoin. I don't know. That, that's my <laughs> job with the Romanian fiscal authority. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah. It, it's a nightmare for recording taxes. We have this company which is called Bitcoin Romania and it's not quite the most originally named company out there 
but they have ATMs. So basically in every supermarket around the country, which has an agreement with them and has this terminal to pay your bills, you can actually pay your bills with Bitcoin or Ethereum. And you can also purchase crypto, like only Bitcoin and Ethereum. You can purchase them directly from that terminal, which is also used to pay bills. And you would just insert banknotes fiat. So it's interesting in this regard. But of course, they have their premium price for these services. You pay about 10% more when buying Bitcoin. And they, they also have a few ATMs from which you can withdraw cash if you have Bitcoin. But they have an interest rate of about 7 to 8%. Which I guess you don't mind if you bought maybe at $100 and you sell it right now. But if you get paid in Bitcoin, you actually have to wait for a 7% increase so you break even and you don't actually lose money. But it's still there. It's an interesting service. It's good to have it there. Mm-hmm. It's reassuring in a sense that you don't, need to rely on people on local bitcoins to actually help you have some fiat if you get paid only in bitcoin and also you have some shops like electronic stores which accept bitcoin but it's not directly it's through payment processors we also have some restaurants and some hotels but they also use payment processors. So in this regard, nobody really takes the coins. They just take their fiat after somebody huddles and buys the coins that you send them. Do you have any anything similar in New Zealand? Uh, literally nothing. Um, not that I can think of anyways. I'm, I'm not in the biggest city. Um, I don't know, maybe somewhere like Auckland may help them. Um, but I don't think, no, I've, I've never used it for anything other than online purchases. Um, it was the same. What about Ireland? Ireland? Um, no, again, nothing. Um, you know, I don't think I've ever spent Bitcoins in a physical location. This is actually interesting. How come an Eastern European country has such a, I don't know, has this type of enthusiasm about it? It's strange to me. And also we have John Carvalho, the Bitcoin log, who lives in Romania. It was crazy when I found out about it. So when he had all that Bcash debate with Roger Veer, it was actually in his apartment from Romania. Yeah, he runs a... Does he run a meetup there as well? Yeah, he meets people every week, but I I never go there just because I have this crazy schedule, so I have to work. So yeah, I wish, I wish I could go to these meetups just to see what the community looks like and what kind of people actually participate. But at the same time, I was happy to meet him in person once. And I guess you'd be very happy to hear 
that you use bit refill now that he works for them. And I think I'm going to interview him for the Steam podcast this week. So that's a nice coincidence. Yeah, no, I, I used to run a meetup in uh, Ireland. Um, and we had massive turnout of, I think it was four people one night. Um, that was the kind of highlight. Really? I mean, how do you explain this lack of interest? Do you have such a low inflation rate or do you have such a high trust in banks and institutions that people don't care? Yeah, far from it. Um, I mean, the, the one in Dublin is, uh, is massive. Um, I'm, I'm from the north. Um, so I don't know, just I'm going to put it down in a small city. Uh, the meetup group itself had quite a lot of people join, but uh, not a lot of them showed up. Um, but yeah. If I go back, I'd like to pick it up again. So are you from the north of Ireland or from northern Ireland? Uh, from the, the north. Northern, well, northern, both, I suppose, uh, right on the border. Okay. That's, I guess that's an important distinction to make. <laughs> As you are part of the European Union? Yeah, at the moment. For the moment, yeah. But, you know, in Romania, it's interesting that so many people have gotten into Bitcoin. And at first it was all about computer, computer scientists. And I can think about one guy who is said to own about 600,000 Bitcoins. He's considered to be one of the biggest whales. And he never sold anything. And, you know, you think about this small country in Eastern Europe and you ask yourself, okay, what is so special about it? Why so many of us have gotten into it? Do you have, do you have any theories? I think we have a bad experience with communism and maybe a low trust in institutions. But at the same time, I know that in France, they have the same case with low trust in politicians and institutions. I guess they like a bigger state at the same time. They, they are okay with everything being public and subsidized by their taxes. Whereas in Romania, we have an increasing wave of libertarianism in the sense that people begin to question the efficiency of the public system, which is basically inherited from the old regime. We have the old generation which could not conceive how anything can be private because they lived under a totalitarian regime. So naturally, the next institutions after the revolution were not changed so much and their structure is still public and we pay taxes so they get funded. But when you see that you have a high percentage of corruption and you, you actually have to bribe your doctor to make sure that he doesn't cripple you during a surgery. It's not like that anymore. It used to be a lot worse, but in some parts, you still have to give some kind of bribe just to be sure that they pay attention to you and treat you in a nice way. Even though you're paying for the services through your taxes and all of us, when we file our tax returns and we declare our revenues, we have to pay for 
the medical system for the whole administration apparatus, also for public education. And if you want to go private, it's not like you can opt out and say, I'm not going to pay for the state services and I want to go private. You just pay for the state services and use extra money to go private. So I guess this is why we got more interested in Bitcoin. Yeah, because I think that Bitcoin, if widely adopted, could have uh, quite a knock-on effect on tax systems in general. Um, it would have to be a lot more opt-in. At the same time, Bitcoin is not very fungible. So I'm not sure if there are communities who are supportive of Monero or even Zcash to some extent. I've never met them, but I suppose that these people who own large amounts of Bitcoin might also like Monero. Yeah, I like, uh, no, I consider myself kind of uh, in the school of Bitcoin maximalism, but uh, I, I, like, I like Monero a lot. Um, I think it, it fills a, like a use case that Bitcoin doesn't yet. Um, same with kind of the Mimblewimble implementations. Um, but 2019 definitely seems primed for being the year Bitcoin becomes more private. I mean, you've got all these kind of coin joint implementations, got uh, data endpoint. Um, Snore. Snore. Um, well, I'm not sure that would be... I don't see that on the horizon. Uh, not for another couple of years anyways. Uh, but the Lightning Network even. Um, I think the privacy concerns... Uh, it's going to become a lot harder for, you know, agencies uh, kind of track the source of funds. Yeah, but at the same time, I recently found out that there are some companies which specialize in analyzing Bitcoin addresses and they associate your internet traffic, which they can get from the ISPs, from your internet providers, with the the Bitcoin addresses that you look for. So if I check for a specific public key on blockchain.info, then it's going to show up in my browsing history and they can automatically associate that with maybe a Bitcoin wallet that I hold. And I never really put too much thought into this, but this can be done easily. So if you... If you're not using onion routing and if you're not very cautious and use wallets like Wasabi and Samurai, it's pretty easy to determine which address you're actually interested in from where you get your money and you can do all that kind of analysis and track your funds. Mm. Um, the block explorer I like to recommend is uh, ox.ne. Um, and that's, uh, I think, I think Samurai own it. Um, that's, that's a good one. Um, cause as you say, blockchain.info, if you're waiting on a payment and you're constantly refreshing the page, um, they're, they're going to obviously associate that IP and cluster the address, uh, with that IP address. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of the importance of, of running a node as well, right? Uh, if you're using a custodial wallet, um, bloom filters, uh, they're kind of designed to mask 
which UTXOs you're looking to see. Um, but you're still able to kind of narrow down uh, or like cluster the addresses. And we have we have Neutrino now, which is slightly more private. Sure, but these solutions are not very accessible to those who get in. And I guess it's the same case as Zcash, which some people just buy from exchanges and they think that every transaction that they're making is actually private when it's actually not. And private transactions are more expensive and slower and you have to opt in for the private transactions. And a lot of people can get confused in the process. It's, I guess it's the same with Bitcoin transactions, which make your transaction both fungible and private. You actually have to do some research. You have to own the proper means. You have to run your own node. There is a list of requirements that you need to fulfill in order to be sure of the privacy of your coins. Yeah, um, that is the problem with opt-in privacy. Um, the other one is that you, you have quite small anonymity set. Um, I mean, if only, if only a fraction of Bitcoin users to say using CoinJoin, um, you know, you, you have a fairly small uh, like pool of addresses to analyze. Um, so, I mean, I think it's important that, you know, everyone starts to use CoinJoin um, or other kind of similar uh, schemes, the more the merrier. Uh, it makes it more difficult for you know, these blockchain analysis companies and such. Yeah, I, I sometimes suspect that these companies are funded by government money because otherwise who would actually care about what you're doing? Yeah. Or maybe quantum computing companies which can't wait to try to crack down SHA-256 and they will associate your public key and try to crack down the encryption. <laughs> that's insane. Yeah, um, it will take maybe two more decades until at least that's what I heard. I'm not sure. I'm not a specialist in the field of quantum computing. I remember seeing a, a theory a while back that uh, Satoshi uh the addresses with uh, what million Bitcoin, they're basically there as bait, um, so that I think with something like the NSA can uh, can see as soon as someone's cracked quantum computing. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's it's up there with the whole Satoshi is an alien. You get some incredible uh, theories. Do you have a favorite one? I think. Uh, I think I think that one has to be my, my top one. I think the Craig Wright Satoshi one's quite taking quite a few liberties. I, I think two of my favorite ones are that Satoshi is a time traveler or that he's the first artificial intelligence to develop software in a very successful way. But at the same time, you also have the NSA theories like Satoshi means intelligence and Nakamoto means central. 
if you do this very rough and uh, maybe free translation and you take into account some word roots in Japanese and you come up with this and say, okay, so it's an experiment by the, by the CIA. And you have these cryptographers who are brought together and they had to develop Bitcoin and they deployed it out there in the open. And then what? What's the purpose of this? They're trying to replace the US dollar. They're trying to run an experiment on human greed. I've heard so many theories about it. Uh, I thought that, okay, this might be a legit theory. And maybe that the NSA or the CIA had all the money in the world and all the manpower to create something like Bitcoin. But you can't really find a proper answer for the question why. Nothing I mean, really it was, makes sense. There was an interview with a, a DEA agent a while ago, and he said uh, Bitcoin was great for, uh, you know, in assisting them with drug crimes because it is just a permanent record of uh, transactions versus, you know, cash. Uh, it's a lot easier to track. Actually, if the entire world was to adopt Bitcoin in its current form and we gave up on cash, I think our financial situation would be quite Orwellian because yeah. it becomes very easy to track down payments. They're all just written on the ledger. You just have to make the proper associations with the IP address and maybe do some what's it called, social engineering, and you're all set to find out everything about everyone. Absolutely. And I think like this idea of transitioning to like a cashless society is uh, it's quite dangerous, uh, at, least, at least at the moment. Um, I, I don't think the software is really ready yet. Um, right. Cash gives you certain assurances you don't get with cryptocurrency. I know it sounds crazy when I say it, but since I got into Bitcoin, I've started to appreciate cash much more because it gives me the privacy of not leaving any traces. I just go to the shop and I pay with cash. That's so mm -hmm. much more convenient. Yeah, absolutely. I see all my friends paying with their credit cards and they... They brag about getting some kind of special gifts back from the bank and some kind of benefits. But I, I just like cash. For, for Bitcoin, I see the value proposition as being the kind of asset or valuable item that nobody can confiscate from you. Mm. I think the store of value part is much more important than the mean, mean of exchange. Because you can always do something with a centralized system, which is faster, more scalable, more secure, easier to fix if bugs are identified. Whereas Bitcoin should always be secure and should always provide a medium for you to store your value securely and in a way that you can trust. And you don't have to trust an institution, you just have to trust the underlying cryptography. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, it's when I got into Bitcoin, I didn't give too much thought to, uh, you know, the, the financial uh, ecosystem. Didn't really have a problem with fiat currencies. And then, of course, the more you read, 
kind of like I'd, I'd never heard of Austrian economics before I got into Bitcoin. Um, kind of starts to make you question the yeah, currency, and the more you kind of look into Bitcoin, the more kind of makes you question that even more. It's like a positive feedback loop, and then uh, before you know it, you're in the the Austrian kind of school of economics. So, what is your background? If you never heard of Austrian economics, um, I did law university. I mean, I I got interested in Bitcoin like high school. Um, I didn't really, uh, you know, fall down the rabbit hole straight away. Um, yeah, no, Austrian economics must have only stumbled across that two, three years ago. Oh, so are you younger than I am? Twenty-two. Uh, oh, so you're very young. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you? I'll be twenty-seven next month. All right. So, yeah, I'm a lot younger. You're a lot younger. When I was 22, it was the first time I heard about Bitcoin. And it was mostly jokes about people owning Bitcoin and being broke. And that was in 2014. It was during the crash. I, I didn't know much about it. I started reading. I've lost interest because... I was doing political science. I have a master in political science and comparative politics. And I just read an article from, I think it was Washington Post or Financial Times or whatever. Wall Street Journal, doesn't matter. It was about Bitcoin and how, how the whole libertarian dream came to an end and how it's all a scam, a Ponzi scheme. At the time, I guess it was a popular media narrative to call it a Ponzi or a pyramid scheme. And, uh, I just read that and I said to myself, ah, I'll move on. I can live without ever knowing much about it. But as time passed and it recovered, and I even had at one point, I was an exchange student in Paris in 2015. And I had to do a presentation assigned by the professor on blockchain and Bitcoin. And at the time, I just did it, you know, how you do all the school course, chores, not course. It's just an obligation. You learn the bare minimum. You make that PowerPoint presentation and then move on with your life. But to this day, I still regret that, you know, I had all the information. I had the opportunity to learn much more and to get on Bitcoin talk and maybe, I don't know, buy one Bitcoin because it was only $100 at the time. But I didn't. Yeah, I, I sold my first Bitcoin when I made like uh, $10 profit. So I'm pretty great with myself. Um, <laughs> yeah, same. But you shouldn't then, feel bad. It's still a profit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, economically speaking, at least you you didn't get wrecked. So, what should I ask you? You're 22 and you got into law? And did you yeah. graduate in law? Yeah, uh, bachelor's degree. Um, yeah, it doesn't... 
it doesn't particularly appeal to me to follow a career in law. Um, I'll, I'll go back and do my master's, but I might do it in uh, software development. Um, it's a, a code on the side. Um, yeah, law, law is not that interesting. Well, if you ask me, it's very interesting. And you had people like Nick Sabo who got into law just to better understand how contracts work. So he can develop his theory on smart contracts. So I, I guess it's required as a skill to be able to juggle with the laws of governments and then understand how the governance of blockchain works. And I guess you also have a fellow Romanian, Vlad Zamfer from Ethereum. And he spends a lot of time talking about governance and he's in charge of his version of Casper Proof of Stake. I'm not sure if he has any background whatsoever in law, but if he had, I guess he would understand slightly better how blockchains should work. Yeah, um, that's the thing. I mean, I really don't think... Uh, I mean, you, you do get kind of pseudo-blockchains that aren't really uh, you know, decentralized enough to resist uh, you know, state actors. Um, I mean, I think that's the beauty of Bitcoin. You're not going to shut that down with any kind of legal, um, you know, any bills, legislation. You could try, but I doubt it would have much of an impact. I also know that governments at this point are willing to cooperate and talk to people who can advise them on proper policies regarding cryptocurrencies because it's very easy for them to at least try to ban them or declare that they're all securities and they should be taxed accordingly. But the outcome is not as they hope for. And I, I guess you've learned in law school that you have a literal law and you have the spirit of the law. So you have the intention and the literal application of each law. And even though you have good intentions and you think that it's going to work that way, you're going to end up with a very poor application unless you understand the whole picture. And then there's also the issue of over-legislation. When you try too hard to legislate and you specify each condition as parts of the law, then you're going to have a lot of trouble with people just bypassing But I guess it's different in Ireland. You have a common law system inherited from Great Britain, right? Um, I actually studied UK law. I studied in Scotland. Um, yeah, that, that's common law. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, quite similar. Um, yeah. I, I did some civil law. Romania oh. has taken the French model of institutions back in the beginning of the 20th century everybody used to speak french instead of english and it was our main cultural influence anyway that's an irrelevant detail for our discussion do, do you know of any bitcoin regulations in ireland or in new zealand um I think just other than that, 
tax law. I mean, it's, it's a nightmare getting paid in Bitcoin. You need to record everything anytime you sell. Um, but at least, you know, we're in a, we're in a bear market. So most of the time, it's a slight loss. Um, yeah, not, they're not overly harsh on, uh, you know, ban or whatever. You're in Romania. There is no piece of legislation to mention Bitcoin at this point. None, none whatsoever. Nothing on blockchain, nothing on cryptocurrencies. They just have something on digital currencies, which are M-Pesa and some other digital currencies, which are used as tokens by some companies to ease transactions. But they don't have to do with ERC-20 tokens or anything related to crypto. Hmm. Yeah, do you remember in, uh, I think it was like 2014, 2013, maybe the EU looked really uh, pumped to kind of uh, go and you know, provide good legislation, assembling task forces and everything. But uh, it really looks like things are stolen in that regard. Yeah, how, how do you deal with something over which you have no control? And if you were to try to control it, you would actually threaten your provisions on private property and you would actually turn your government into something questionably democratic. So it's code. If you were to ban Bitcoin, you'd have to ban other types of code. Yeah, I mean, there's that idea. Point your finger on one specific feature in that code, which doesn't comply to your legislative system. So it's difficult. You can only say that the assets resulting from that code are actually money. But at the same time, I don't think governments want to acknowledge Bitcoin as money. That would be a way for them to prepare the ground for a big loss. Because as soon as they acknowledge that it's a currency which they tax, then the next step would be for citizens to begin to trust that currency. They're going to say, okay, so my government acknowledges Bitcoin as a currency, which means that I can buy it and hold it. Having complete trust in the wisdom of my government, which said that it's safe. And that, that's a big difference. Up to this point, they can only point their fingers and say, that's a scam, that's going to collapse, that's going to fall there's no future for it. Beware of investing in such a thing. Don't touch it. Trust our central banks. So they, they have this authority of shaping the narrative, creating the news. But they cannot control anything about Bitcoin. I guess that's the beauty of it. There is a clear divide. I guess the governors of central banks are very much aware of what's going on. But they don't want to rush up until the moment when they have to legitimize something which is not issued by their central bank, is not part of any international agreement, and cannot be controlled in a way that favors their policies. That's a a very good point. I mean, as, as soon as soon as uh, your government starts saying, uh, you know, don't buy Bitcoin, that's that's your buy signal. Um, yeah, sure. 
I remember back in early 2018, we had the governor of the Romanian Central Bank who made a media press conference to announce that Bitcoin has collapsed in price and we should all be aware of the fact that it's a bad investment and instead we can invest in state assets which give a guaranteed 5% return after a determined number of years or we can make bank deposits which don't really give a big return anymore. But that's only the financial aspect. That's only for people who only care about putting in $10 and getting 20 If you take a look and you're interested in property and actually having something which cannot be confiscated, then that's a better use case than the speculative aspect. I guess everybody gets into Bitcoin for the promise of making a profit. You see it as an investment at first. And then I guess that through the market cycles, you get wrecked. And once you get wrecked, you either take your money and leave, or you begin to read about it and get informed and try to understand what's going on. And it's then that you actually realize that it's, there is so much more to it than you initially thought. And that's why I also have a good idea or a good opinion about all these other projects, which people call shitcoins. I think I like Litecoin and Ethereum Plastic and Monero because I consider them to be gateway drugs to Bitcoin. You buy them because they're cheap. You learn how to use them through wallets and all these applications. But at some point, you actually realize that the real deal is actually Bitcoin. And their communities are also supportive of Bitcoin. They, they say, okay, we have this specific use case. We promise to do this. But Charlie Lee himself tells you to buy a whole Bitcoin before investing in Litecoin. And that's quite something. That's a benefit for the entire community, which I guess some Bitcoin maximalists fail to understand. Yeah, I'm, I'm one of them. Um... I think as a gateway, I mean, one that I do like, kind of just Ethereum Classic has an interesting kind of philosophical alignment with Bitcoin. Um, again, Monero does something Bitcoin doesn't redo really at the moment. Litecoin is just, it, it seems a bit pointless to me. Like, I understand what you're saying about gateway drugs, um, but with, with that market cap, it's it just, I don't think you can justify it. Um, I mean, it's whole value proposition. You know, you get a block every, what, 2.5 minutes, uh, faster transactions. That's, that's done, though. I mean, you have the Lightning Network. Um, a lot of people working on that. Yeah, that did. but I give it, like, two more years at least until the Lightning Network becomes more user-friendly and gets beyond this bubble or echo chamber of enthusiasts. You only have a few people who are actually interested in lightning and an entire sector or an entire group, which is very large of people who just want to max out their investment. 
And when you want to max out your investment, you look at Bitcoin and you see that one unit right now is 4.5K. I'm not sure what it's worth. I, I don't check coin market cap anymore on a daily basis. But if you see Litecoin, you see that it's about 30 bucks and you say, okay, I'm going to buy this. It used to be 300 something dollars. Maybe that I buy this and I hold it for a while and I will get 10x on my investment, which I guess is a decent and not out of ordinary thought to have if you believe in the technology. But once you get into this environment, you can either fall into the rabbit hole and join the community and see what, what they think about the industry and learn something more than that. Or you can just be a speculator. And I think the first group of people actually benefit and get into Bitcoin. And that benefits the, the group of Bitcoiners at large. Well, the latter may or may make some money or may just get wrecked and spread some bad rumors and back up the bad reputation that cryptocurrencies have. Yeah, I mean, I do, I do have a softer spot for Litecoin. Uh, I mean, because they deployed Segway first, didn't they? Um, it, I used to kind of uh, justify it as like a test bed for innovation on Bitcoin. Um, I, I think it does more harm than it does good. I mean, if you say someone goes to buy Litecoin because it's thirty dollars, uh, what's to stop them then from going? Because you know this this pre mined token uh, owners control eighty percent of the supply. That's only fifty cents. Uh, I, I think it's important to kind of distinguish Bitcoin from the rest of them. Um. Unless the others have kind of specific use cases again, like privacy. I think that's a good point. I'm not sure if I have a counter argument right now. Because if you get on Coinbase, you can find lots of shit coins these days. You can find 0x, which I'm not sure what it even does or what its value proposition is. It's like an ERC20 token which centralizes other ERC20 tokens. Yeah. Um, now I've come across, what is it? It does like decentralizes exchanges or something. Um, but I mean, you, you can do that without a token. Um, it's a shame because you see a lot of good businesses I think that could work without a token. Um, it's just, it's oddly coincidental that blockchain technology is you know so disruptive or whatever when it also makes its founders millions, billions sometimes of dollars before they even... Uh, produce product like a lot of the stuff can be done without a blockchain yeah i hear that opinion a lot and some people like justify the use of blockchain just for the lack of censorship they can resist to a certain degree the idea of censorship and maybe some App developers like the idea of having their work stored on many nodes. And I don't know why anyone would ever care enough to censor their app, but whatever. It was quite an, an interesting thread by Preston Byrne. I think it was yesterday or the day before on uh, 
how Ethereum uh, basically runs on Infura's servers. Um, I mean, mo- most most people talking about censorship resistance is just them launching a token on top of Ethereum. Um, does that not kind of make Ethereum your central point of failure that you're trying to avoid? I mean, I, I don't like Ethereum for a very specific reason that when they hard fork, it doesn't take much until all the nodes update to the new version, which means it's very centralized in its governance. They had that infamous DAO hard fork, which ended up backing up the investors instead of sticking with immutability. And I guess that's why I like the classic side of Ethereum. And also you can have like three or four people gathering in the same room and they decide how about we delay this upgrade and we put something else instead and they say, oh, brilliant idea, let's do it. And the fact that you have so much power invested in just a few people makes it what I like to call an oligarchy and that's going to become even more prevalent as soon as they switch to proof of stake and they're going to inflate their supply according to how much coins everybody owns. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see how this uh, Constantinople power fork plays out. Um, I mean, will it be contentious? I've, I've not looked too much at the, you know, the, the two sides of it, but uh, like Ethereum just seems to be quite their whole community seems to be very optimistic about proof of stake. Um, but I agree with you. It's a, it's a plutocracy. Um, you, you're not putting any kind of skin in the game. Uh, you see miners, they, they can rise and fall. Um, like if you look a good few years ago, uh, G hash had the one point, I think it was 51% of the Bitcoin hash power. Um, they're not really in the picture anymore. Um, is mining it requires that you constantly uh, stay on top of all developments, ASIC chips. Uh, it requires that you know you you burn money essentially, um, and you don't get that with proof of stake. You're uh, what was the analogy? So you're reusing the same lottery tickets. Um, so rich get richer. Yeah, I guess that's the economic model and the security model of Ethereum. And that's why I like Bitcoin, because it's a system of elites which can crumble at any point. We've seen Bitmain just collapse in a matter of months due to sticking with Bitcoin Cash against all the warnings and also doing some bad investments with their ASICs and not being able to keep up with the competition. And we see them close down offices and dumping thousands of ASICs and throwing them and we see pictures. And I'm not sure how many of them are just propaganda by those who oppose their dominance. But it's clear that you have a giant which is slowly fading away from the scene and we're going to witness some other entity which may or may not get the same amount of influence, but this is the beauty of a free market, which mining through the proof of work 
consensus algorithm creates. It's all about being there, doing the kind of work that is required. And if you're, you manage to be profitable, you're going to be around for a long time. If you take some kind of risks, there's always somebody to replace the same kind of work and rise up to the scene. That's not something that you will ever see in proof of stake. In proof of stake, it's all about how many coins you own. You keep your node running and you just receive a fixed amount according to not a fixed amount, a fixed percentage according to how much you already own. And that only perpetuates the same system. It's not like you can expect any kind of change unless somebody gets hacked or if they suddenly decide to make big donations to spread adoption. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd like to see a consensus mechanism that doesn't you know, consume so much electricity, but uh, so far nothing's manifested itself. Um, I don't think proof stake is the answer. I mean, I've also seen how EOS or EOS, I'm still not sure how they choose to pronounce it. They have that system of a few oligarchs who decide and vote all the time. They are block producers and they are basically the governors of this entire network. I guess it's an interesting experiment which doesn't deserve all the attention and all the money that it has. But that's not up to me to decide or up to somebody else. I guess on, in the long term, it's just the market and the technology that will determine whoever becomes a victor and resists on the market for another 10 to 5 years. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, stuff like EOS... Um, I, th- I think that makes perfect sense for, you know, for businesses. Like you don't really need censorship resistance for your supply chain. Um, EOS, so like something like that, or like even uh, you know, Blockstream's Liquid, uh, where you just have a couple of validators. I think definitely why they needed to raise billions of dollars is kind of beyond me. Well, they needed for marketing. They needed to keep the price up all the time so they can burn as much ETH as they can just to stay in the top 10 and hopefully remain relevant for a longer time. But you don't see that in Bitcoin, or do we? I guess we see miners who decide to inflate or maybe pump the price just so they max out their investments. It's in their best interest to keep the price at a level of profitability so that they never really do it at a loss, which makes a lot of economic sense. But that's a long stretch to affirm that it's thanks to the miners that we have a support area, which is right at the threshold of global mining profitability. That's not up to me to state, and I'm not sure how it works. I still don't trust technical analysis. I think most of it is bogus, and it's made up by people who need Twitter followers and want to sell their private Telegram channels. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, I've, I've never really traded, but uh, yeah, I don't really think technical analysis is something that applies to uh, you know cryptocurrencies, tokens. Okay, I could be wrong. Um, I mean, some people seem to, seem to swear by it. No, so I'm not very sure if I almost broke into Romanian. Uh, it's hard for me to think into languages, but I'm not very sure how the price works, but I'm not in this for the price specifically. And I'm looking forward to the developments in Bitcoin over the next five to 10 years. I know that it will be around. I know that governments will strongly oppose it. I'm actually intrigued to see that rumor about Russia getting into Bitcoin as a reserve currency and as a way to bypass all the restrictions and the embargoes that are in terms of trading. What do you yeah. think about that? Um, I was thinking about this one earlier. You see if uh, a country adopts it as a reserve uh, currency, I think it's it's only a matter of time before they start issuing uh, like Bitcoin tokens um, and, you know, in, inflating the supply of those. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. I mean, if Russia adopts it, uh, it will definitely get villainized. Uh, I mean, look at, look at Gab.com all of a sudden. Bitcoin's become this currency for Nazis in the media. Um, it was the same with the Silk Road, currency for drug dealers. Uh, ransomware, like currency for hackers, so on and so forth. I think these are going to keep coming. Um, I I didn't used to think an ETF would be a good thing, but uh, someone made quite an interesting point where if you have kind of big shot investors investing in uh, Bitcoin, even if it is with a financial instrument that's not you know directly holding your private keys, you kind of make it more difficult for the government to have an, un- an unfavorable stance uh, when it comes to legislating it, because, I mean, so many of your, your citizens are now holding this asset. Yeah, it's a further legitimation in this sense. But I guess an ETF also leads to a lot more price speculation. It leads to a lot of uninformed investors who suddenly become interested and they get the wrong idea of what Bitcoin should be? Yeah. I mean, I think different people will always have different uh, threat models. So, I mean, I, th- I fully believe some people will go through their whole lives using Bitcoin and never holding their private keys. I think some people won't even be interested in technology itself. They'll just trade uh, speculatively. Like, what's important is that you can always run your node. You can always transact without having your... Uh, payment kind of interrupted um, and that option will always be there I think yeah I guess these people should before judging and before posting sensational headlines about what Bitcoin is maybe that they should look into the writings of Team May who wrote the Cyphernomicon and in the first page he describes the cypherpunk ethos which says that To them, it 
it's much more important to retain privacy than to become accountable to authorities. So if criminals begin to use their technology, then just so be it. They, they don't care much about it. Their purpose is to attain a high degree of privacy and not to become friendly to the governments and create loopholes and allow state agencies to monitor the activity. Privacy comes first and compliance with laws comes later. And that's where Bitcoin comes from. It comes from a world where it doesn't really matter who you are and what you want to do with the protocol. The consensus we within that's written in code actually incentivizes actors to be honest. And you have much more to win if you play by the rules than otherwise. That, that, I guess that's the innovation of Bitcoin in itself. It solves this interesting military problem in a way that has helped it survive for 10 years now. And it keeps afloat and alive lots of altcoins, which basically use the same core principles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm ashamed to say I used to kind of tend towards uh, positivism on the legal side, um, where a law is only as valid as the government upholding it. Um, but I think uh, Bitcoin is kind of like it's a lot more in line with almost like a natural law, where you you assert your right, kind of privacy, uh, freedom of association, um, and there's nothing anyone can do about it. Um, you know, it's, it's your right. It's kind of like social contract that you have when you start to transact in Bitcoin. Um, it's a, it's the same thing with encryption. Um, and you mentioned Tim May's stuff, the crypto anarchist manifesto. Um, there's some of the points in that they ring true today. I mean, this thing was written what 30 years ago. In the late um, 80s, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, you know, when I don't write about cryptocurrencies, I also try to finish a PhD in political philosophy. And in terms of philosophy, you have these tools of thought. With There's the positive school of thought regarding human nature, which says that we as rational beings are actually innately good and we have the best of intentions. And it's not that we are born bad. We actually have very good intentions. And when we drift away from this idea, it's usually due to greed, but that's the exception. So being a bad actor is actually the exception to the rule. Whereas there's the negative school of thought, which I guess is embodied by, mm, wait, I have this, <laughs> I don't remember his name. So he wrote the Leviathan. Hobbes? Thomas Hobbes, yeah. I, I wanted to say Edmund Burke, but that's somebody else and that's a different school of thought. Thomas Hobbes. He is the embodiment of this idea that we are all evil and we are all wild 
We are just animals who wait for a greater authority to give them rules and tame them and show them how to live. Because otherwise, you know, you have that famous quote about being nasty, brutish, and short in terms of our lives. And that's also the school of thought to which many of my professors in the political science school abide to. And they explain to us that it's a good idea to have regulations, to legislate, to make sure that everybody acts according to the law. But in this regard, I think I'm closer to the idea of a social contract, which was written by Jean-Jacques Rousseau, which, in a nutshell, it's a lot more complex than this, obviously. But he believes that we have reached a certain point in human evolution and development where we can be much more educated than just animals. So in a state of law, in a state of nature, we can actually use our education and all the years of civilization that we've had to construct something that we think is better as opposed to turn into our primal selves. Yeah, I, uh, I, I actually strongly, strongly disagree with the, the idea of a social contract. Um, I mean, basically, you're you're born into something. I mean, I, I don't recall signing any of these documents in the womb. Um, I'm, like, I wouldn't. I, I don't know if I'd consider myself volu- voluntary volunteers. Um, but I think, insofar as uh, you know, government systems, you should have a lot more. Uh, more of a right to kind of opt in as opposed to being, you know, forced. That's um, something I agree with. But at the same time, it should be accompanied by what you said, a voluntarist action, not just the theory of it. You have to understand that no government is perfect and ours is pretty flawed and messed up in many ways. But there are still people who shouldn't just be left to die. You have these people who are born in with great disabilities. And that's not really... I guess it's cruel to resort to social Darwinism and just say, okay, if they're not fit, then they should die. We have to find a system through which we allow them to keep on getting proper medication and whatever else they need. I'm not saying it should be done through taxation or through states. Actually, I tend to believe in small communities as they discuss and they can figure out what they actually need as opposed to a bigger institution which governs over a larger number of people. I like the idea of an assembly or a federation of small villages. They don't have to be literal villages when you think about it, but, you know, a few neighborhoods and blocks just making decisions for themselves and using the technology that we have nowadays to propagate these decisions to a higher level. 
and tell the representatives up there what to do and how to act. I guess that yeah. would be interesting, but at the same time, we're not properly educated. I'm not sure. Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure it's better in Ireland than New Zealand, but in Romania, you have a three percent of the GDP being given to public education, and the public education is what most of us get. Yeah, no, I agree with you completely. I think we're on the same page. Um, in principle, I think the whole taxation is theft uh, is, you know, it's, it's correct. Um, you're paying your taxes to avoid getting thrown in jail. At the same time, I really have no problem uh, paying towards healthcare, education. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I'm, I'm for, like, taxation of some description, um but it should like it should be more um well voluntary and i know that uh like hardcore libertarians they just flatter refuse um which is you know fair enough um I, but i think there's a middle ground to be struck there i remember a twitter post by eric Voorhees. And, you know, he is this hardcore libertarian, at least in discourse, because in practice he pays his taxes and does all that compliance stuff. But he said that taxation was made so that you pay for the services that you don't want to pay. Because otherwise you could just say, I want to pay for education and healthcare by myself. I'm okay with it. It's a good idea. I want us as a society to grow and develop and each generation to inherit what we develop and we research and we discover in our lifetimes. So that's a good idea. I want to pay for it. But through taxation, you actually pay for the salaries of your representatives, administrative costs, the army, secret services, yeah. There's, there's a lot of stuff that, that governments do. Mm. If we knew about all the stuff that they do, I guess we would have either another revolution or we would hold them accountable and we would ask for a greater transparency. You yeah. see it in the movies and I guess it's inspired from real life when you have CIA agents who have unlimited budget and they just give them as much money as they need in their undercover operations just to make the operation succeed. And maybe that you can argue that it's for the greater good, but it's still taxpayers' money. Yeah, I'm reading the uh, the Snowden files by Lucardin at the moment, and uh, it's, it's insane. There's just this massive, massive network of uh, just all these government agencies. People didn't even really... Well, they didn't really know what was going on in them. Um, so you have to question the ethics of a system that makes you fund these things that are just used, you know, for mass surveillance, which is which is a violation of uh, the constitution. Yeah, forget about it. You know, if 
the government doesn't respect the constitution. And when I speak of the government, it's about the institutions as bodies, not as individual politicians and actors. If it infringes your rights, then it's much more legitimate and there's very little that you can do about it. It's just like in the cases of the Middle Ages when you had the sovereign king who had these Machiavellic ideas of governing and the laws were for everybody but the king. I guess it's the same with modern governments. They can infringe and they can break any laws. There's no limit to what they can really do. And even though you vote and you delegate your will to a representative, it's not always like that. And it's not like their promises during the electoral campaign cover everything that they're going to do. They just cover the popular topics. And you usually end up with lots of disappointments and broken promises or extra pieces of legislation which affect your life that you never agreed on? Yeah, I mean, I, I see a lot of merit in, uh, you know, the, the kind of libertarian uh, ideology of, you know, like kind of sacred contract rights, property rights, um, non-aggression principles being like the, the overarching kind of law. Um, kind of having like a minimized government. Um kind of having that idea of self-sovereignty. Yeah, but at the same time, we have to be aware that this whole idea of libertarianism is only for the fortunate few who are smart enough to deal with their problems in their lives and are also fit to work. As I constantly see people complain uh, here in Romania about the amount of work that they do and how the state doesn't do anything to help them, they expect, I guess this is inherited from the old regime, but they expect the government to step in and cover every aspect of their lives. And I remember I had a conversation with my geography teacher from high school And he was like, oh, it's so terrible with your generation. Because back in my day, you had the government which would give you a job immediately after graduation. And you're actually forced to have a job. Nobody was unemployed. If you're unemployed, then you're in jail. But even if you're in jail, you're still forced to do some kind of labor for the community. So it, it was still work. And he told me that I'm so unfortunate to be part of this generation. And it was hard for me to explain to him that actually the beauty of this political landscape is actually the freedom to pursue what you like, to try new stuff, to realize that you don't like something and then switch to something else and constantly strive to improve yourself and find meaning in what to do. That's not something that they care about. It's all about stability and having a long-term prospect, which I guess our generation doesn't value as much. 
Anyway, yeah. I have no idea how we drifted so much from Bitcoin to this. It yeah. was all about libertarianism. Well, I'll, I'll tie it back into Bitcoin. Um, I think the beauty of the system is that, you know, it's so apolitical. Like you have people trying to tie in their politics, um, their philosophies, when really it's just uh, just like a nihilist void. Everyone in Bitcoin acts for themselves. Um which in turn, and some people think this is a bad thing, but it makes it very, very difficult to change the protocol by achieving consensus. Um, so, I mean, everyone everyone acts in their own interest if uh, everyone agrees that a change could be made which benefits themselves, it will go through. You know what I was thinking just now? And it's not like it's very spontaneous. I've actually given it a more extensive thought, but didn't have anybody to discuss it with. It's about socialists and the fact that not enough of them are into Bitcoin. You mostly see libertarian, carnivory people brag with their big stakes and talk about Austrian economics. But at the same time, you have this niche of socialists who don't like banks, don't like the financial system, are very critical of many aspects of economics. And they find, or at least they have the opportunity to embrace this kind of technology, which is ideologically agnostic. And it doesn't really care about their biases and about how they view the economy. It just gives them the opportunity to hold their assets in a way that's, that cannot be censored and that maybe grants them the chance to have that revolution that they dream about in which the workers seize the means of production. But if you, if you take the writings of Karl Marx and you take ideas like alienation from labor and owning the means of production and the class division between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, I think Bitcoin provides a very nice environment to satisfy some of your ideological needs as a socialist. Yeah, I'm sure I've not, I've not given it too much thought, actually. Um, I'd like to see a good analysis of that. Um, because, I mean, it is, it's not particularly left-wing or right-wing. Um, like, it can, one size kind of fits all. I think I just gave myself a good idea for an article. Yeah, I'd be interested in reading that. And at least I know somebody would actually read it. <laughs> yeah, you know what's, what it's like when you write something and it gets published and you see that you get maybe a thousand views, but you don't know anybody who reads it and there is no way you can have a discussion on it. It's just this strange kind of feeling which you have that you work a lot and you, you do a lot of research. And at the end of the day, you have no idea if it matters, if somebody actually cares about your work. Yeah. Um, yeah, normally I, I like to uh, tweet my articles and then obviously you see who's retweeting, who's liking. You kind of get an idea 
Um, I, I really like because we transitioned from uh, Chainrift from like uh, the Crypto Insider domain to Medium. Um, I must say, I like it a lot better. Um, obviously, it was like a bigger, bigger, like a wider community that might frequent Medium and then just see your article listed. Um, and then you get obviously your analytics tools, uh, quite a good way of interacting with the author, highlighting stuff. Sure, but how often do you actually get feedback from somebody who tells you, oh, I enjoyed reading this, or you get questions about some points that you've made and you get to have a proper debate? Yeah, I had, uh, I had Craig Wright comment on one of them uh, a couple of weeks ago. It was definitely a highlight of my writing career. I was never so fortunate. But in terms of liking on Twitter and retweeting, sometimes I see stuff from very smart people like Nick Sabo, and I I read parts of it. It's not like I really understand it, but I like it anyway, because I feel like I've learned something, maybe just a bit from it. It's not like I have the whole picture and I understand the context or every bit of the specific lingo which they use but it, it's still a reason for me to like it and i'm not sure if he interprets it as hey look somebody else is as brilliant as i am to actually understand this yeah yeah i know what you mean uh i mean sometimes i just like stuff to bookmark it um yeah i mean even if there's a like a concept I don't understand completely. I'll still give it a like on uh, Twitter, like show show my support. But you know, I'm I'm so much into this, and I, I've got so much time that I spend writing about Bitcoin related topics. That last night I had a dream about explaining to a friend about Mimblewimble. It's really weird you say that because I had a dream, uh, it must have been a couple of months ago, that I was hanging out with Voldemort um, and he was talking about Mimblewimble because obviously that's a spell from Harry Potter. Um, yeah, sometimes I'll get like cryptocurrency dreams and they're just so weird. Oh, so you get many more dreams than I do. Yeah, but, like I've had one or two in my time, um, you know, where you have like Twitter personalities showing up that you've never met. Um I probably spent too much time on Twitter. So what whom did you have dream, dreams? Like which crypto personalities? I think Crypto Cobain was in one of them. Um, trying to think. Yeah, that was one of the more notable ones. I think uh, one of the authors for... Brave New Coin was in one. Um, but like some of these people I've never interacted with. Yeah, it's insane. We, we spend so much time that even our dreams get occupied by these people. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's probably the best way to like broaden your knowledge of cryptocurrency is writing about it. Um, this is like topics you would never... You never really uh, approach until you decide I'm going to sit down and write an article about this. 
But do you see yourself taking the step into software development? I'd, I'd like to. Um, I built a couple uh, Bitcoin-related tools there up on GitHub. Um, one was for uh, like steganography, where you hide either signed transactions or private keys and photos. Um, it's un- undetectable. Um, I wrote another one where you could transmit uh, transactions over radio. Um, oh, yeah, I mean, that's, so that's the one I ripped off. Oh, right. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it's, I'm, I was inspired by, like, uh, Elaine Ooze and Nick Sabo's presentation, uh, Scale on Bitcoin, I think it was last year, the year before. Um, yeah, no, I, I like the kind of code. Um, I, start, I started mining recently, just like a small USB miner farm, but uh, I feel like I've learned a lot about the software. Um, I'll, I'll definitely continue to write. I like writing. Um, I would like to transition into a serious development. I don't think I'm very good at coding, so I don't see myself doing anything else but writing. As in, I can maybe run nodes and test different minor software, even though I don't have a powerful system to actually do something with it. But I don't see myself transitioning to something which doesn't involve a simple user interface and uses too much coding. I remember in high school, I was terrible at mathematics but very good at literature and stuff that actually used the narrative and described into words. I guess my abstract thinking is much more limited than my colleagues who can't actually describe something into words, but they have a better understanding of symbols in mathematics and they just do it faster. And it's fascinating that our brains are wired in different ways and we can actually collaborate and give the best of our work and the most efficient way to which we can add value to something. Uh, for sure. I mean, I work with some, um, like a client, and they're mostly software devs, and uh, they do like cryptography stuff that I can't even you know, I can't even wrap my head around the, the basics of, but uh, they're terrible at explaining it. Yeah, and that's why, I guess, us people who are good with words will always be required. Yeah. Unless we shill ICOs, which is the most terrible way of using our natural skills. Yeah. There's been quite a lot of uh, you know, attention on that on Twitter last month or so. Yeah, what paid endorsers and influencers? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, some of them seem to have like cropped up out of nowhere. Um, I think I think it's fine if you you know if you let people know that it's sponsored. I mean, you have to make a living. I think it's it's pretty unethical to not say anything. But I think it becomes obvious at one point. How many projects can you actually get interested in and support? 
Yeah. Like how much is humanly possible to read on and say, this is so legit. I like it so much. It's the John McAfee effect, I guess. He had the coin of the week or something. What, what was it he charged? It was something like $250,000. Oh, yeah. Per tweet. I mean, I'd love to get to that level. But, uh... That guy is insane. I, I have no respect for him whatsoever. I don't really understand why people hold him in such high regards and say he's this kind of shameless god who can say whatever he wants and do whatever he wants. I have really no respect for that. I think he's a bad actor and he's a bad representation for what Bitcoiners should be portrayed as. Uh, I, yeah, to be honest, I wouldn't see him as so much of a Bitcoin. Like I, I periodically go through the people I'm following on Twitter and just kind of cut out. I mean, I've cut out a lot of um, you know people that talk about tokens and cryptocurrencies other than kind of Bitcoin and privacy coins. Um, and I find it makes it makes my feed a lot better. I see what I want to see. Sure, but you will always have this enthusiastic crowd of people who make private Telegram channels and do <laughs> this bogus technical analysis and pretend to know and have insider info on some kind of project and then run pump and dump schemes. I don't think these are going to go away unless we get regulations which classify some cryptocurrency project as securities or bonds or commodities or whatever. Yeah, I think we've got another, I think we've got a long time until, you know, one, one currency wins out. Um, And yeah, then you have people not. like, what's his name? Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what his name is, but he used to sell Binance accounts when signing up to Binance was limited in December 2017. You basically have the people who sell shovels and pickaxes to people who are after the gold rush. Yeah, that's yeah, good analogy. But it, it's still bad in terms of ethics, as you're fueling the kind of behavior which makes this whole, I, I'm not sure if I should call it business, but this whole activity or field, it gives it a yeah. bad name. Yeah. Um, yeah, they'll take a while to go away. Um, I mean, on the bright side, you know, the bear market seems to have a lot less uh, paid groups than back in November, December. But I guess once we see the, the same kind of rise once again, we're going to get back to scam projects. We're going to get back to paid telegram groups. And even though the Lightning Network makes the use case of many altcoins and shitcoins redundant, we're still going to see people who are hopeful that this project, which got launched in 2019, is going to be the next Bitcoin for whatever reason, because it has this extra feature which makes it 
easy to market in a way. Yeah. I mean, because scalability was kind of a big narrative for why our coin is better than Bitcoin uh, last year or the year before. But now that people are kind of beginning to appreciate that you need off-chain stuff, you know, whether it's uh, IPFS, um, some other form of storage, or, you know, like a microtransaction layer, um, I don't think we're going to see that as a big market employee, uh, you know, with the next wave of projects. Like uh, security token projects kind of seem to be, or they seem to be maybe four or five months ago taking off. Yeah, and right now they speak about SDOs as opposed to ICOs. Yeah, I think my favorite was a token generation event to try and separate themselves from the, you know, the stigma of doing ICOs in some cases. That, that's a very bad name, token generation event. I guess they could come up with something more imaginative. Yeah. Um, I mean, and it's quite obviously an attempt uh, to distance yourself from ICOs when really you're doing exactly the same thing. At least be upfront about it. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a shame because ICOs are, you know, on paper, a good way of crowdfunding uh, a project. But, I mean, so many have just jumped on the bandwagon of either promising completely unrealistic uh, products. Oh, come on. I guess you're calling them unrealistic in a very diplomatic and nice way. Because I received a proposition from somebody, and I have no restraint to call it batshit crazy. It, it was about tokenizing the gifts that corporate corporations make for their employees. And they would say that corporations buy their employees millions of dollars worth of Christmas gifts. And most of the times they don't like it. And then you have this token, which is supposed to replace the gifts that corporations make as if all of a sudden they would say, oh, it's a good idea to give them this token as opposed to give them money. Yeah. Like, I mean, too many people come in with the idea that they're going to have a thriving ecosystem uh, based around their, their own private currency. Um, like, I mean, let's be honest. If, if, you know, some of these products do materialize, you're not going to take your Bitcoin wallet, wait for it to clear on an exchange, swap it, for the token you need to use this particular service and then send it over to the smart contract, you're, you're just going to want to do that directly. I think what will happen is these tokens will kind of just be integrated into the back end. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's one I'm still trying to figure out here. Um, I got, I'm, I'm sure you're the same. Your inbox just gets flooded with uh, people wanting you to write about their project. One of them was for a drone taxi company or something, but on the blockchain. Um, it I, I has all the buzzwords. Yeah, like every single one. Go on. Sorry for interrupting. No, it's, it's absurd uh, what you get away with. 
I mean, the SEC seems to be uh, picking up the pace when it comes to, uh, you know, hunting down some of these founders, but it's, it's far too slow. I think the crazy part about the ICA, which I described, about gifts within corporations, is that they actually had this very academic white paper, which looked nice. They had lots of references with data from The Economist regarding how much companies spend on a yearly basis to make these gifts. So in a sense, I guess they were trying to legitimize their project through an existing market, which has a very large capital and a lot of room to actually capitalize on it. But it's insane to think that anyone would use your stupid token as opposed to giving money. So you can actually negotiate with your employer and say, I don't want to get the gift. Just give me the equivalent in US dollars. And I guess in five cases out of 10, you'd get a positive response. And they would just agree and say, okay, if you don't want the gift, we're not going to buy it for you. But to use a token for all this, and then what? What, what do you do with the token? You, you get paid in it and you exchange it for Bitcoin? Or do they actually set up a shop of themselves from which you can buy whatever you like? And that, that's yeah, also I mean, insane. That seems to be the, the kind of promise for a lot of them is that they have all these partnerships with companies that will accept the token. Um, I mean, that's just that's just unrealistic. Um, if I'm running a business, I'm going to want you to pay me in something that will hold value. Uh, it makes no sense to have like a whole uh, market or economy of like fluctuating value on these tokens. I, I think we should get back to Bitcoin and have one last topic as we're approaching the two-hour mark for the podcast. What What is your view on hyper-Bitcoinization? I think, uh, I think we should still be treating Bitcoin as an experiment. Um, that said, I think the financial system is like headed down a bad path. Um, and I think Bitcoin certainly, uh, more so than other uh, cryptocurrencies, has the best chance of replacing fiat currency. Um, like, I, I don't think any other currency could do it. I think it was, uh, I think it was Al Finney um, said that if something tops Bitcoin, then you're never going to have any faith in that as uh, you know, the money, um, because anything could go ahead and do it again. Um, I I think hyper Bitcoinization is is definitely possible. Um, I think it's going to take a while, and then obviously, if so, uh, the financial system takes a sudden downturn, I think. That's when it uh, occurs. What about yourself? I think it would be useful at this stage to define what we understand with hyper-Bitcoinization. 
as some people seem to refer to it as that moment when Bitcoin replaces fiat currencies. Or other people use a more loose term in which they just think about a wider adoption where you have an equal situation where you can pay with Bitcoin or you can pay with your credit card or you can pay with fiat. So it's either about adoption or about replacement. I've heard both of them. I'm not sure which is the official narrative that people think about. I think the best post is on uh, the Nakamoto Institute. Sorry, two seconds. I'm just trying to find it here. Um, it's by uh, Daniel Rose. Um, I, th- I think that's that's when I that's what I take to understand this hyperbitcoinization. I'll send you the link. Um, So, I mean, obviously, the term itself is meant to come from um, hyperinflation. Um, So once, yeah, currency starts to fail, all of a sudden you'll get uh, Bitcoin as a more trusted uh, store of value. Sure, but does that imply a complete replacement of fiat currencies through Bitcoin? Or does it imply just having a... an alternative which makes much more sense from a, an economic perspective. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I don't know if it would be. Like, suddenly people would just snap and switch. Um, presumably, if your currency was just plummeting day by day, they keep printing more, you would want to exit that system as soon as possible. I mean, I think there was there was kind of reports that that was happening in Venezuela, wasn't there? Um, at one point, maybe three months ago, I don't know if it still holds true, but if you'd bought Bitcoin at the top, by this point, I mean, the top obviously was in December, January was it, and then it just started downhill trajectory. The Bolivar actually did worse. So even if you were holding Bitcoin through those losses, you would still have more purchasing power. I guess this makes a lot of sense. And this fits into my theory that hyper-Bitcoinization will actually happen from the states or the governments that need it, not from the ones which benefit from a more or less transparent financial policy like European states, like the United States of America, the free world will be the last to embrace Bitcoin to a greater extent because we don't really see the point in it. We don't really need it. It's not like... I guess we can have another big financial crisis and we can see another case with bailouts and where central banks print a lot of money to save the system. But at the same time, I think our trust in 
the authorities as democratic states is greater than in the case of dictatorships where they actually try to get away. So their mindset actually is to integrate into a system which works better in their interest. Whereas democracies actually give us this false sense of security and trustworthiness, which is harder to escape. Yeah. A friend and I are actually working on a series of articles about this. Um, I think Bitcoin ground zero will kind of be in nations where the government is clearly failing. Like, I mean, Bitcoin disappears tomorrow. It's not going to majorly affect me. I mean, I'll probably start investing in gold. Uh, like, beyond the kind of slight frustration that we're still stuck with fiat currencies. You know, there's no there's no major um, inconvenience to me. But if you look at, you know, a country under oppression where your funds get kind of taken from you, whether through inflation or you know, physical confiscation, I think that's where uh, that's where we'll see the value of Bitcoin. At the same time, you also see how these countries which actually need Bitcoin, like Venezuela and Palestine and Taiwan, and I guess there's a list of countries which are not recognized by United Nations. So the mandate of intervening with the policies or at least the degree of the embargo doesn't really allow for a type of international cooperation to help the central bank recover. But these people are not really the ones who can afford to buy Bitcoin. Their, the denominations of their currencies in U.S. dollars are very poor. They can only get small amounts, and it's very difficult for them to get any, sometimes due to the political regimes which they have and some restrictions to their access to the Internet. Because at the end of the day, the amount of Bitcoin that you have or the degree to which you can get involved into Bitcoin is proportional with internet freedom and the extent to which you can access an exchange or you can trust or you can safely access local Bitcoins or whatever website you want to use to acquire some amount and you have to yeah. trust in a financial system to actually wire the money when you get into Bitcoin. I guess it's very difficult if you live in a dictatorship as you have to sneak out and do this in a way which can be interpreted as breaking the law, being illegal. And I definitely wouldn't want to live in that side of the world. And I guess... Both of us are very fortunate. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think there's two main priorities in uh, developing nations. Uh, the first being, obviously, you know, uh, user experience, user interface. Um, like even even today, you know, the less kind of technically adept really will have a hard time uh, using Bitcoin. Um, so if you do want adoption in developed nations, you need to really make it as simple as possible. Um, another thing I think is quite important 
is, uh, I mean, you mentioned the M-Pesa there earlier. Having that kind of network of, uh, like, accessibility where you can you can pay in cash, like a news agents or whatever, um, and then just get just as easy as you can get top up, get uh, Bitcoin. Um, and Budion um, is working on a thing called his Teco. Uh, Danny Brewster's working on fast Bitcoins where you go into a physical location, you pay cash, and then you get this top up. Um, I think that's, that's very important, um, especially if we're to avoid, you know, KYC and all that in the long run. I guess at least in some countries you have these ATMs from which you can buy Bitcoin. And if the amounts are negligible and it's less than, say, $1,000, you don't need a national ID when purchasing. So you can do it with small amounts repeatedly to buy larger amounts. But at the same time, you pay a lot in fees, so it's not very convenient from this point of view. Yeah. And I guess um, I mean, ATMs also have surveillance cameras and stuff, so if they want to see who bought or withdrew money, they can actually see the recording. Yeah, I mean, it depends how much you're willing to pay to, uh, against it. I mean, local Bitcoins is pretty decent if you want to uh, exchange for cash. Um, BISC network is another one worth keeping an eye on. I've never had much luck with uh, liquidity in my my area. But um, we really should be striving to make peer-to-peer channels you know, more accessible so that you don't end up with exchanges kind of being the only on-ramps, off-ramps. Definitely. And I've heard of people who had their funds frozen or they had to provide more documentation when trying to withdraw their coins, even though they fulfilled the first wave of KYC. They had to send out many more documents, and then they were only allowed to take out parts of their coins, like one Bitcoin per day. Yeah, I mean... I, th- I think the, the funniest, I mean, it wasn't funny, it was quite sad. Um, kind of point where we come full circle was when Coinbase started banning uh, transactions at certain addresses. Like, I mean, exchanges, they're not, they're not like cypherpunks, they're businesses. Um, they have a lot of obligations, um, especially when you're trading fiat or coins. I mean, others, you have them in kind of questionable jurisdictions. You're just trading all coins, Bitcoin. Um, but yeah, they're not, they're not here for the same reasons everyone else is. I guess they are a convenient gateway. It's easy to acquire something on Coinbase. It's easy to withdraw from Coinbase, even though it's completely KYC and you have no privacy, and you don't really own your own coins as you don't have access to the keys, at least not as far as I know. I I never tried Coinbase. It's banned in Romania. 
bad everywhere. I said banned, as in they, they oh. don't have service here. So you can create an account, but you cannot buy anything as they don't have any kind of agreements with local authorities. So they don't operate. I guess you can do it with a VPN, but you still get stuck with your bank account as they don't take your card unless it's from a different country. But it's for the better, I guess. I've... Yeah. The only one that I've used to buy Bitcoins from is Bitstamp. Oh, yeah, it's the European one, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And I've had a decent experience, nothing to complain about. I think I've also tried Bracken at one point. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I've ever... Um you know, paid in fiat to an exchange to get Bitcoins. Uh, anytime I've done it, I've either been paid, used an ATM, uh, got them off local Bitcoins, um, which I think is really, again, what we should be striving for. Yeah. I guess my issue with local Bitcoins is that you actually have to trust an individual that they're going to be honest. And I remember reading that even Steve Wozniak, the co-founder of Apple, got ripped off. Yeah, I've, I've never, I don't think I've ever had a bad experience with it. I don't, I don't use it that often. Um, yeah, I think, again, I've, I've never had it use BISC, but I've heard fantastic, uh, fantastic reports. You know what else I want to ask you about? I've heard we spoke of Coinbase, and I've had an interview with Charlie Lee in December, and he said something which made me think about it, that it's actually much more secure to hold your coins on Coinbase or an exchange which never got hacked than to actually hold them on your computer, which might be filled with malware and lots of tracking software. And unless you're an OPSEC expert who knows how to wipe their devices and knows exactly what to do, it's safer to be on exchanges, even though that's so anti-cypherpunk and it's fully KYC and it's custodian and... Everything that we should get rid of. I, I agree with it to an extent. Um, I mean, obviously, uh, the gold standard is something like the Glacier Protocol, um, where you just completely air gap computer. Um, I use hardware wallets. Um, uh, just I have uh, three or four of them. Um, I keep them. Uh, so kind of try and split my funds between them. Uh, keep someone back in Ireland. Um, but, I mean, if if even, say, uh, if my girlfriend wanted to keep funds and I wasn't there, kind of making sure she was correctly storing them on, like, a hardware wallet, her funds would obviously be safer on an exchange. Um, because, as, as you say, you just don't know if you've got some kind of malware 
Um, I mean, because cyber criminals get creative with this kind of thing. Um, so again, I think a certain demographic that just want to kind of gamble, um, speculate on the markets, they're better off keeping their coins on exchange. I think you should strive that once you buy in, to kind of learn about, um, you know, safely securing your coins in a self-sovereign manner. I think this is one of the biggest issues with Bitcoin at large, as a lot of people get scared when they hear about self-sovereignty, and they just ask, so where do I keep this? To whom should I hand them to be actually in a situation where I can legally hold them there and I can hold them accountable in case something goes wrong? It's the same as being afraid of holding your money under your mattress? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a paradigm shift. I, uh, I recently um, lost some, some funds because I forgot my hidden wallet password. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't an obscene amount, but uh, like even, even I'd, I'd consider myself you know, adept at uh, managing my funds. Um, like accidents like that happen. Um, like self sovereignty definitely isn't for everyone. It should be, but uh, it is quite a shift away from you know custodial services that we've gotten so used to, bank accounts and the likes. Yeah, and it's so convenient to just show up at the desk with your national ID, and that's your key card to basically do anything to your account as they just identify you and say, oh, you're that guy, and you forgot your PIN number for the credit card. It, it's fine. We can change it for you. Yeah. That's something, something I'd like to see kind of um, evolve would be there's a lot of companies working on like self-sovereign identities where you use uh, zero-knowledge proofs to prove your identity. Um, I think that could be good. Uh, I'm not too sure if anyone's kind of launched a product yet. It definitely sounds interesting, and I guess it's very Chaumian in this regard. It's similar to what David Chaum wanted to do in the 90s with money. Yeah, um, like I think money is a money's. It's I think it's very important that that's kind of decentralized. Uh, a lot of projects, you know, it's kind of questionable whether what you're looking for is decentralization. But I think identities, uh, marketplaces, um, things like that should be you know, censorship resistant. You should have kind of um, complete sort of management of your keys, or your identity. You spoke before about hardware wallets, and you said that you own a few. Do you actually choose to trust Trezor or Ledger? I guess that's a big debate in this regard. Well, that's the thing. I, I, have, um, I have one from each company. Um, and I have a, a Bitbox as well. Um, yeah, it, it is a risky take, isn't it? Um, I, I think hypothetically, they could be planning like a, an exit scam where they go and take 
just wipe your funds one day. Um, I tried a thing with uh, Electrum Wallet, which is quite interesting, where you you build like a multi-sig address where you need uh, two of three hardware wallets to sign a transaction, enabling you to spend the funds from that address. Um, but, I mean, that kind of scares me. I'd hate to lock up my funds and uh, not have access to them. So for now, I just spread them out, uh, keep some in a software wallet. Um, air gapping would probably be the best, um, but I haven't got around to that yet. What do you use yourself? I have a ledger. And I've seen that wallet fail presentation, which took place on the Christmas week of 2018. And in many ways, it really scared me to see how easily you can tamper with these devices and how far you can actually go to manipulate the hardware. And in the case of a Trezor, they actually managed to find the right kind of cryptographic input to make it reveal the seed keys as well as the private key, which is insane. Yeah, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in the case of the ledger, like the amount of effort you'd have to put into stealing someone's keys is like it's quite high. You don't need to be sitting like in the room with them. In all of these cases, you need physical access. Yeah. I mean, I suppose it depends on your threat model, whether that's something you're okay with. In the case of the ledger, they actually installed a version of Snake, and they played the Snake video game on it. I think if it was me... um... If, like, if someone came into my house with a baseball bat and said, give me your wallet, I would give them uh, access to, you know, one of the wallets. Um, I think all these devices have hidden partitions now, where it's a size that, you, you know, you hold a tiny, tiny amount. And then so if someone does kind of uh, start torturing you, you can just give them that. Um, yeah, I, I, doubt I could I could mitigate a physical attack. That's actually something which I think about often. When people come to me and they say, I've actually memorized my seed keys and I know my private key. And I tell, I, I just tell them, what if somebody tortures you? What if they try to extract that kind of information from you? What if you talk in your sleep I did uh, did an interesting interview with uh, it wasn't it wasn't pertaining to cryptocurrency so much with a smuggler crypto anarchist. Um, he basically developed software for um, if you, if you're traveling through you know border security checkpoints, if you're being tortured, you have uh, like a device stored at your home. You connect to it. Um, and you encrypt the, the data with a specific set of keys that expire unless you extend them. So if you're being tortured, um, all you need to do is wait out that time, and then you can give the attacker the key, 
and they can they can verify that at one point this key did work um but that it no longer does um so there's really nothing you can do about it they might just choose to kill you then but um interesting like versus it's not as much plausible deniability like you're being completely open with the people yeah but you're taking a lot of liberties with this approach as in you assume that you can measure time and you can know precisely when you can reveal the information and when it gets changed yeah i, I mean i mean it's ordered that you can actually count time yeah um i mean obviously you could set a short timer right? but it just depends on how long you can you can withstand being waterboarded It's still a, an interesting approach to it, but I think I'm not sure how. But I, if I think hard about it, I, I guess this can be improved. It's the same. I'm not sure if you're aware of Estonia's electoral system. They have that. Are you talking about the e-residency thing? They have e-voting, which means that. They have, I think, a two-day period of time in which you can vote. And you can cast your vote with the same ID number from your national ID as many times as you want. And it's only the final vote that counts. So if somebody tortures you and makes you vote in a certain way, and then they let you go, you can actually go home and vote however you want. It's also a way of removing bribery and stuff like that because it becomes redundant. If you pay somebody to vote in a certain way, unless they do it in the last minute before it closes, there is actually no point to try to pay them to do something because you have no guarantee that it will be final. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure which part of this can be implemented to the idea of getting tortured to reveal your private key, because at this point, the private key is not dynamic. It's the same. There is no way you can change it unless you switch to a different wallet. Yeah. I mean, like, fundamentally, it's very, very difficult to design, like, a, <clears throat> a duress-proof system. Um Yeah, I mean, your options are basically plausible deniability um, or like smuggler software making it impossible for you to actually recover the secrets yourself. I mean, I guess you know much more about security than I do. And in some regards, I tend to be pretty ignorant, but I don't hold large amounts. I don't even have a full BTC and I don't care... I don't think anyone cares about myself, and that's the kind of ignorance which strengthens the power of hackers sometimes. Yeah, did anyone listen? I actually I lost all my Bitcoin last night. Um, it was quite sad. So you lost all your Bitcoin? Is that what you just said? Yeah, all, all my Bitcoin. Uh, I have nothing. Oh, yeah, in a boating accident or something. Yeah, exactly. 
you just lost the keys. Your house was flooded and the paper on which you had written down your keys was actually yeah. on the floor. Yeah, you know, it happens. Uh, so I'm, I'm back to square one. Yeah, we got to know how to start from scratch. And we love this cryptography invention with money so much that we are willing to buy from scratch once again. Yep, in it for the tech. In it for the tech. <laughs> I guess that this is the ultimate proof that you care so much about the tech that you lose everything and then you get back in just because you like it so much. Yeah, I mean, look look at all the people from uh, Empty Gox that lost all their money and they came back. Um, like, I'm, I'm not sure if at that point I would just give up. I mean, it, it's a centralized service that we are speaking of. So it makes sense for them to care much more about Bitcoin as sound money than about Mt. Gox as a website which held all the registers on this MySQL database. It's true. But yeah, if I got wrecked around the time and I had my coin stolen, I'd be very upset. I guess the, if the same happened to Binance or Coinbase or what are the biggest exchanges? Yeah, I think Binance would be the top one at the moment. Um, as, far, as far as I know, you can. Um, like it's like a, I can't remember, was it Nick Carter coined the term uh, altcoin casinos where you don't have uh, fiat transfers so you have less kind of liabilities. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm I'm waiting for the, like there's a lot of money on these things, and uh, like that's that's your problem really with uh, centralized systems. Sooner or later, someone smarter than you is going to want to come in, take it, um, and they'll probably succeed unless you have you know the best best security in the world. Did you ever use one of these decentralized exchanges? No. Um, I think some of them are pretty popular. Uh, Radar Relay, I think I wrote about a while ago. Um, now have you? Yeah, I've actually used Crypto Bridge at one point. Somebody sent me a shitcoin. And I had no intention of keeping it, so I, I decided to exchange it to Bitcoin. And there was only one way to do it through one of the decentralized exchanges. So I did use it, but sometimes I remember that I left some Satoshis in there as I couldn't transfer everything. There was the fee portion, and then I don't know for some strange reason I still had some Satoshis left in there and sometimes I wonder in the case of a hyper Bitcoinization when I lose access to that decentralized exchange yeah that could be worked a lot and that's how these decentralized exchanges can get very rich 
even though I'm not sure if they can seize these funds if they are truly decentralized. So it's just a way of increasing the deflation effect on the supply. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think one of the upshots of the decentralized exchange is that you do own your private key, um, but in the same and of course you can you can trade any token really um, that isn't listed. Um, but you know, if, if a token's not listed anywhere, is it really that good? Um, I mean, what was the what was the process like? Was there a lot of liquidity? I don't really recall. I just know that I received like 10,000 units of a shitcoin, which was worth of like 50 bucks at the time. And I just exchanged it into Bitcoin and then transferred it to my wallet. It was as basic as can be. I even looked to see if they support any other big cryptocurrencies. And I was surprised to see that there was no... Ethereum and no Ethereum Classic. I'm not sure why. Aren't the aren't some of these decentralized exchanges built on Ethereum? Yeah, um, I've seen I've seen quite a few. You know, obviously you need to use uh, the token of the people who, who created it. Um, I think because obviously ERC twenty tokens would be a lot easier to trade. I'd imagine, uh, given they're both on the same blockchain. Yeah, everybody wants to print their own money. Are you still in there? Sorry? Uh, There was this extended moment of silence. Oh, sorry. And I actually thought that this was disconnected or something. I'm not sure if I have anything else to ask you at this point. We had a pretty lengthy discussion. Uh, we did. Was that two and a half hours? Oh, yeah. Almost. <laughs> and I feel a bit tired. It's almost two in the morning or two at night. I'm not sure how I should label it. But it's 2 a.m. And my neighbors must have listened to this whole conversation. On my end, because I'm using headphones, so there is no way they could have heard you. They probably think I'm insane, and I talk to myself in English at night. And Matt B., it was incredible to have you. I'm happy that we had all these discussions, which range from regulation and law, and all the way to our preferences for hardware wallets and decentralized exchanges and hyper-Bitcoinization and whatnot. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, Pleasure being part of the first season. Oh, yeah. And just a spoiler, I'm going to have some really big names in the second season as I want this first season to have 10 episodes. And the system is that whoever books a spot will get one. But I have a couple of very big names who are willing to do podcast interviews in late February and early March. And I guess by then I will begin the second season. So, yeah, I guess there's a lot of growth potential and it's endearing and 
it makes me really happy to see that people are interested to just talk about their interest in Bitcoin and get featured and appear on the Bitcoin takeover. To me, it means a lot. And I know that this is a project which is in its infancy. But I hope there's an audience for this. And for all the scam information out there and all the malevolent articles and YouTube videos trying to make you invest in the equivalent of the next BitConnect, I hope we also get to have lots of productive discussions which actually help people or maybe give them an, an insight on something they wouldn't have thought about otherwise. So yeah, this is the end of the show. I'm glad you've been listening to Matt B. And you can follow him on Twitter at let me check your dash. It's Matoshi N. M-A-T-T-O-S-H-I-N. And he has a picture of Kim Jong-un, the dictator of North Korea. Actually, it's him with a mask, but that's easy to identify if you think of Kim Jong. And that's it. Bye. Thank you very much.